I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Hey guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. G'day, guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us Steve Walker, NRM Education Officer and Frog Watch SA Coordinator. G'day, mate. G'day, how are you? Yeah, good, buddy. Now, it's not the first time you've been on the show. No. But we haven't caught up for about a year, and we thought it was time yeah, to get you that. back. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what's new in the world of frogs? New in the world of frogs? Well, there's always something interesting going on with frogs. I guess one of the big issues that people are thinking about at the moment is what has been the impact of the bushfires on the frogs. I don't have a definitive answer on that as yet, but hopefully we'll be able to gather some information on that as people send in recordings over the next few months, see if the frogs have been able to bounce back from those fires. Pun intended. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's a tough gig when you're a frog. I mean, birds can, you know, often get away from the extreme heat. They can fly away and, you know, a lot of the mammals can hop away and run away. But if you're a frog, what, what have you got? Some of them can dig. So if they're, luckily enough, they can dig down below the heat of the fire and, and wait it out until the fire's gone. Otherwise, some of them are just going to go up in smoke, I guess. But they may be able to make use of snake burrows or other reptile burrows if they're lucky. Or would, which sometimes would they, because they're tree frogs, would they maybe go up trees and make that big mistake? Or I guess it's always possible. I don't have the mind of a mm. tree frog, so and I've not been in the middle of a bushfire, so I'd be guessing. Sorry, about... Adrian. Why did why did Steve come back? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we might stop it there, guys. Thank you for listening. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks anyway. Yeah, yeah it, it's an interesting question. You know, if if they're in terror, they might just go the first direction they think of. And if they're lucky, they can survive it, but possibly they're just going to get cooked. Because mm. yeah. you, when you think of frogs, you think of moist skin and, yeah. you know, you don't, you don't want their skin drying out. And it doesn't sound awesome being in a bushfire no, if you're a frog. No, I mean, it's not awesome for any creature to be in the middle of a bushfire, but something little that relies on moisture is certainly going to be in, in problems. And then the problem of if they have burrowed down on that and coming up at the moment, it would be super dry because of that fine dust yes. that's there at the moment. Yeah, very difficult for them. Mm. Yeah, they can't help their, their skin. Because you, you always hear skin on frogs very sensitive. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, m- most frogs don't really like it if you handle them. Uh, some of the oils and other materials on your skin can burn them. Basically, they're breathing through their skin. It's a little bit like having a lung on the outside of their body. So if you've got your hands and rubbed it through your lungs, that's not going to feel very nice. Frogs are going to be pretty much the same way. Some of them will produce chemicals that help protect their skin, so they'll be able to handle it a little bit better than others. So things like the green tree frog, they tend to be less sensitive to being handled than some of the other smaller frogs. Is it right, like we were always told as a kid really that you should wet your hands before handling a frog so yeah it's generally a, a good idea to make sure your hands are really clean and not clean with soap because the soap is going to cause a problem but if you've got nice clean hands you've washed off a lot of the oils and the salts from your skin and certainly washed away any perfumes or anything like that having wet hands will be better for the frog but if your hands are really really wet when you come in contact with a frog the frog is very slippery and it makes it very difficult to hold the frog. Mm. So it's a little bit of a catch-22. Were frogs your first love? No, I've been interested in animals my whole life. Certainly as a very young child, I remember 
being outside and hunching around in the garden and collecting things and watching TV shows with people like David Attenborough and just being blown away. I absorbed a lot of that and I, I knew that I wanted to be involved in animals in some way. And as a result of that, I went to university and, and did a degree in biology. And I just so happened to get given a lot of assignments on frogs. So when, when I was at uni, they'd randomly assign assignments to people. And the first one I got was on frogs. Okay, did that assignment, handed it up. The next assignment they gave me randomly was on frogs. And I think I got about three or four on frogs. And to me, that was a, this is a sign from the universe saying, this is the way to go. And the really cool thing about frogs is once you start getting interested in them and finding out information, they're just amazing creatures. And look, they really are. And, and you can say that about a lot of things too. When you're, you're forced to you know, study a particular subject at uni, you know, you, maybe something you wouldn't have naturally have been drawn to, you, you do become quite you know, into it because there is a lot to know about things. But mm. frogs, like you say, I mean, they're awesome animals. Yeah, and I like to make the little joke, there's a frog for every occasion. Okay. Because you think of a situation where you wouldn't expect there to be a frog, there's a, a frog that handles that. So we've got frogs living in the middle of the desert, in some of the driest deserts on the planet. We've got some that will go down towards the coast and hang around in the rock pools once the tide has gone out. We've got tree frogs, we've got grass frogs, frogs that spend the whole time in water, frogs that can glide through the air. There's a frog for every occasion. Gliding oh, frog. That, the, the webbed feet. Yeah, there's, a, there's a few different species, but they've got huge amounts of webbing between their fingers and toes, and many of them have also got um, flaps of skin on the side of their body so that when they jump into the air, they will extend their fingers and toes, and it acts a little bit like a parachute, and they can slowly glide their way through the, the air. They're not flying. They're not flapping their arms and legs to fly. That would be but, funny. <laughs> but they will soar from tree to tree, and it's generally a way to avoid predators like snakes. Unfortunately, some of the snakes in the rainforest in Southeast Asia have also evolved gliding. So if you're ever walking through the rainforest and you see a frog glide past or it hits you on the face, don't panic. The frog's not going to hurt you. But it would be a good idea to have a bit of a look around. Duck. There may be a snake <laughs> coming after it. That would be cool. Yeah, so that if you're, would be a bit of a dream of mine, Steve. <laughs> if you're scared of snakes on the ground and you think they're creepy, imagine them <laughs> gliding through the air after you. We did see um, a flying snake, didn't we? Yes. I mean, yeah. you'd call it gliding, but the name of the snake was the flying Paradise. Snake. Paradise yeah, flying paradise. snake. Yeah, they're beautiful animals. And we saw the dracos, dracos. And the, the gliding yeah. lizards and... Yeah, amazing. Yeah. But you sort of understand when you're in places like rainforests and things, um, you, you sort of get that there's frogs around pretty much everywhere. It's, it's yeah. a great noise out there. But the desert, like that just makes no sense at all, does it? Mm. You've got to make a living somewhere. Yeah, that's mm. right. yeah, it's weird, isn't it? It never used to be desert, did it? So it's sort of those animals have adapted as it's slowly dried out. Yeah, as conditions change. And the, the really cool thing about frogs is that for every rule that you've heard about frogs there's going to be at least one frog that breaks those rules. So people, when you think about frogs, they think of frogs laying eggs in water, tadpoles hatching out, turning into little frogs and then moving out of the water. There are frogs that have said, that's not going to work for me. I'm going to give birth to live young or I'm going to change it slightly so I'm going to lay the eggs on land and have the development going on in land. They're just amazing creatures. So there are frogs that are live bearers? Yes, so there's certainly a few species in Africa which are live bearers. And my understanding is that the 
parents will also secrete some fluids in their body, which is a little bit like a milk in a mammal that the developing tadpoles can feed on. And then they'll give birth to live young. Wow. There's frogs like Darwin's frog, where the male will swallow the eggs and he holds them in his vocal sac, and then the little babies will develop inside the vocal sac and then climb out of his mouth. Well, we used to have frogs in far north Queensland where the female would swallow the eggs, they'd go down into her stomach, the stomach would turn off and basically become like a sack filled with liquid. She'd have 60 or so eggs in there. They would hatch out into tadpoles, swim around, feed off the yolk, turn into little frogs, and then she would vomit them out one by one. So the gastric brooding frogs. Insane. Absolutely. <laughs> Are they extinct now? We believe so. I think it's about the mid-1980s since they've last been seen anywhere in captivity or in the wild. But some of the frogs which we've believed to be extinct have been found again, so there's always hope that we'll get them again. I don't think anybody's holding their breath, but it would be spectacular if they did find them again. Well, some frogs can lay dormant for quite a long time, can't they? Yeah, some some of the burrowing frogs may be underground six or seven years just waiting for the conditions to be right for them to come active again. So could it be possible that they could be doing something like that or is that are they just not that kind of frog? I don't think they're the sort of frog that would be hibernating or estivating out there they're basically a stream dwelling frog so I think if they were going to be around they would be a little bit more active but maybe they're just seeking some shelter away from people you know a lot of effort has been gone to into finding them and haven't found them yet but you never know it's always possible. The frogs that go uh, just lay dormant for years how do they survive? They just sit there. Is it because it's cold? Um, well, they go underground, so they may be going five, six, seven metres underground. They store a lot of water in their body, and some of them will shed some of their skin to form a little bit of a cocoon, which will hold in the water and a little bit of oxygen so that they can breathe while they're underground. But they basically just slow their body down and sit there and wait for the rains to come. Once the rains come, they make their way back up to the surface, find some food, find a drink, mate, and then go back underground again. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty awesome, isn't it? Like, you sort of think, you know, as a yearly rotation, that's cool. You, you sort of understand how that happens, yeah. but to stay there for years, yeah, and then all of a sudden go, oh, here we go. Time to go. That's <laughs> pretty cool. I've had some people say, that must be a really boring life. And I think it's not that bad. You spend ages asleep, and then you wake up, you eat, you have a drink, you have sex, and then you go back underground again. Not such a bad life. And it's a huge party too, because all the frogs come up. Yeah, and it's it's just noisy, you know. Yeah, and some of these frogs, they may be active just one or two nights in six or seven years, and then they're gone again. So if you're a scientist working on these frogs, you've got to be ready that... I think the rains are going to come, get up there, find the frogs while they're active. Otherwise and, it's a long PhD. Yeah. <laughs> and, and if the weather's really bad and you get flooded and you're, you're stuck out there bogged in the desert waiting for the rains to disappear so that you can then drive out again, and you might have missed the frogs by one night. Are we rich on a world scale here in Australia with our frog species? Yeah, we've got quite a, a large diversity of frogs. There's around about 250 or so species the numbers change a little bit over time as as they're reassessed new ones are discovered or they've blended species together 
That's pretty good. In the Adelaide Hills, we've got six native species or local endemic species, ones which are supposed to be here. We've had some others that have made their home here as well. And in the UK, there's three species of frog which are native to the UK and there's a couple of species of newts. So they've got basically five species. We've got six in the Adelaide Hills, 250 or so throughout Australia. Yeah, so in the UK, they've got, I think, the common toad, the natterjack toad, the common frog, the great crested, great crested newt, newt yeah. and the common newt or something like I that. I think it is just yeah. common newt. Great crested newts are stunning. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> South America's got even more than we've got, of course. They've got you know, a huge diversity of species, but we're, we're up there. How come the only amphibian we have here in Australia are frogs when we used to be connected to South America? Good question. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know the answer. <laughs> yeah, in, in parts of Asia, they've got the Sicilians, which are the legless amphibians, and then there's the newts and salamanders in other parts of the world. We don't currently seem to have any in Australia. Um, back when we were all in the prehistoric era, we had the giant salamanders in what is now Australia and Antarctica, but we don't have anything like that at the moment. So there's fossils of giant salamanders in Australia? Yeah, I think like six, seven metre wow. foot, seven, Six, seven foot? No, metre. Six wow. or seven metres? I think metre. I don't six, double check that one. one bigger, yeah. bigger yeah. than a saltwater crocodile. Yeah, um, and I think Coolasuchus may be the name. They were big. Mm. It's fascinating what used to be in an area, you know, when you think about the, the giants of the past. Yeah. Mm. Those Sicilians that you mentioned, are they the ones that I saw in a doco and the babies were eating the skin of the mum? The mum was shedding its skin and the babies were eating the skin? Quite possibly. And there's a few different sorts. So some of them are aquatic. So they basically just look like a big worm in the water. Others are terrestrial and burrow underground and hardly ever come to the surface. You know, they're pretty amazing little creatures. And are they similar to an ulm, which is another... No, the ulm is more closely related to things like the axolotl. So they're a salamander... Um, they're a, one that reproduces in the juvenile state, so they don't lose their gills and move on land like you would expect an adult salamander to do. They stay like a tadpole and reproduce. And they're only found in some of the underwater caves in parts of the Baltic. And I was actually reading a study that was released a few weeks ago where they'd been looking at how far they move because... In those underground caves, there's not a lot of food that comes in and it's quite cold, so they are not very active. And there was one individual that they had been studying for seven years which hadn't moved. Wow. (laughs) Just sat there. So you think being a burrowing frog would be boring? This one doesn't even move in the water. just sits in exactly the same spot and just waits for food to come by. He could move if he wanted to. (laughs) If he wanted to. But, you know, pretty low energy, cold water not a lot of food, they're just going to go, why do I bother moving? This is what my life has come to, I'm just going to sit here and wait. You, so ma- you mentioned axolotls as well, they're, yeah. they're stunning little things, they're, they're pretty awesome. Yeah, so that's a Mexican walking fish, again it's a, a salamander that generally doesn't turn into an adult salamander, stays in the tadpole stage, found in some of those cold lakes in the mountains in Mexico. So the axolotl is analogous to the tadpole stage yes like a limbed tadpole yes yeah with the external gills like feathery gills under some circumstances they can go into the adult stage and if 
I remember correctly, it's related to some of the hormones for metamorphosis, which can be triggered by iodine and also by changing water depth and water temperature. So there have been cases where people have put iodine in the water and dropped the water level to make the creature think that the pond is drying up and that's prompted them to undergo metamorphosis into the adult stage. Every now and again you'll see salamanders for sale in a pet shop in Australia. And axolotls. You see axolotls a lot, but every now and again you'll see... I think it's, I don't know if it's a salamander or a newt, actually. It's one of the two. Would that be same, a morphed... Same thing. Same thing? Mm. Would that be a morphed axolotl? Probably. I have seen th- them available for sale in South Australia where they have tricked them into going through. Okay. Is that the only species of salamander available in captivity? As far as I know, that's the only one that's legal in Australia. Because yeah. they'll, they'll breed in their tadpole stage. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I used to breed them. So I had a pair... And they ran out hundreds of the little babies that we were rearing through and then selling to some of the pet shops. There's all different colour morphs and yeah. everything in them now. Yeah. They're, they're pretty yeah. awesome albinos. Yeah, because cool. <laughs> yeah, cool. the default is a sort of a really dark brown, mm. but you can get complete albino ones. You can get ones which are really white yeah. but still have pigment in their eyes. You can get the gold-coloured ones. They're amazing creatures. <laughs> So in Australia, we only have frogs as far as amphibians go, apart from we have, is it one introduced toad? The, the cane toad is the introduced toad. There have been some others which have occasionally come in. They've been collected in customs or they've been found in airports. But the cane toad, as far as I'm aware, is the only one which is out in the wild. When you said before we've got six frogs native to the Matlofty Ranges and you said there's a couple of introduced ones. We've got the Perrin's tree frog. Yes. Is there another one? We used to have the southern bell frog around the Adelaide Hills, and we think that was introduced into the region from the Murray in about the 1960s, but it hasn't been reported since the early 1980s. So if it's still around, we'd be really interested to see Mm. it or hear it. But in all the frog monitoring programs that I've been involved in since the early 1990s we haven't had any recordings of it in the Adelaide Hills. The um, the parents tree frog I mean that was when that appeared I don't know if it was 15 20 years ago when that first appeared it just was everywhere like immediately yeah. it was just along yeah. the torrents and you know, where did they come from I think along the Murray. Yeah so their natural distribution in Australia includes quite a lot of the eastern states and they also come into the river Murray run the length of the Murray, including some of the swamps and backwaters, and we've also had them from some secluded swamps down in the southeast. But since the 1990s, they've been popping up all over the place. So we've had them up around Kapunda, we've had them in Unley, we've had them yeah. down Morfitt Vale, and points in between Harndorf, Mount Barker. So Unley's the city. <laughs> yeah. The Grange, we've had them down there as well. And I think it's most likely as a result of the pet trade. You can commonly see them in pet shops for sale as tadpoles and frogs. And a lot of the pet shops I've been into, they've said South Australian parents tree frog. Technically is true. They're a frog <laughs> which is found in South Australia. But I believe people would see that and think, oh, I'm in South Australia. I could have those in the pond in my garden. Once they release them into their pond, there's no stopping them moving out. Yeah. Have they caused any issues for maybe some of the rarer frogs that we have here? We haven't seen any evidence yet of that happening, but they are a frog. They grow to about six and a half, seven centimetres long, 
and if you compare that to the common frog which grows to about three centimeters long double the size and typically big frogs when they see little frogs they go yum yeah i'll eat that so there's the possibility of them feeding on our local native frogs but also they're going to be competing for other resources like food and habitat and breeding sites so that can have a problem as well and coming from the pet trade there's no way of us knowing if they've been exposed to any disease so they could be spreading disease into our population as well like like chytrid fungus yeah so chytrid fungus is believed to have spread throughout the world through the um, xenopus which is the african core toad which has often been used in medical research and so they think some of those had chytrid and then when they've escaped that has released the chytrid around the world so you know it's certainly possible that uh, native frogs can be exposed to some of these diseases from introduced frogs. Have we had chytrid here? We have had chytrid in parts of South Australia. Mm. As far as we know, it hasn't taken hold and, and wiped out huge populations like it has in some parts of the world. And there has been some debate about whether our climate is enough to pr- protect our frogs because we have really hot, dry summers and cold winters but I'm not an expert on chytrid fungus, so time will tell if you know, we get any significant die-off in our frog populations. You mentioned the common froglet earlier, and I remember last time you were on, you, you said something I thought was great, and you said how, obviously, people think about frogs as a bioindicator, so if you can hear frogs in a waterway, it means it's healthy. But you said that the common froglet will live in anything. Just about, yes. Yeah, so... <laughs> As a general rule, what I would say is if you've got a high diversity of frog species as well as a high abundance of individual frogs, that's a good sign. If you've only got one species or very low numbers, that's not saying anything. Common froglets and some of the other common frogs, they seem to be able to handle just about everything we chuck at them. They can survive in a range of different habitats and many of them are quite happy to live around humans. But some, like Bibrin's toadlet, which have got very specific habitat requirements, they will be susceptible to any major changes that we make. So if we've got a nice diversity, lots of different sorts of frogs, that's good news. If you've only got one, it may be good, but we don't know. You can't judge just from the one species. Mm. So people are saying if you've got frogs, it's a healthy waterway, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Maybe. Maybe. But we can't rely on just one species. With the Bibrons, I know we talked about it last time, but because we do have them here on the property, their habitat requirements has to be somewhere ephemeral. Is there anything else specific to their needs? So quite often you find them in areas with reeds and sedges that form a mat. So when it dries out or most of the water is gone, it forms a little bit like a carpet that they can move in. And they'll often form little tunnels in these grasses so that if they get exposed to danger they can run down one of these tunnels and get away and they tend to run or scurry like a mouse rather than hop like a frog that you would expect they're they're pretty hopeless at hopping but pretty good at running so if they get any sense of danger they will shoot down one of these tunnels and hide so they like areas where you can get quite a dense mat of vegetation and leaf litter that they can hide in and then of course it's got to be an area which is subject to flooding after rains to provide the habitat for them to breed in. So typically what they will do 
is breed before the rains. They lay up to about 200 or so quite large eggs in the leaf litter or depressions on the ground. And then the tadpole would develop inside that egg about till the stage where you'd expect them to start growing their legs. And then they stop and they just sit there almost like they're in suspended animation, like a science fiction movie, and they will wait. If all goes well, the rains will come and flood the area. Once they're flooded into a pond, the tadpoles will hatch out and finish their development in the water like you'd expect for a normal frog. If the rains don't come, eventually those eggs will dry out and the tadpoles will die. So they're very susceptible to habitat loss. If we go through and clear the land or drain the land so it doesn't fill with water, then there's no habitat for them to breed in. Now, a lot of people want to get involved with helping frogs. You know, a lot of people love frogs. And there's a lot of uh, citizen science projects for people to record frog calls and submit them. There seems to be a few of those. Is, is, is there one we should be focusing on locally to where we are yep. here? Or what do people do? In Ob- fact, listeners all over the country, I guess, probably want to know Yeah, that. well, obviously I'm a little bit biased because I run the Frog Watch program here in South Australia. And is that the best one? That's the best one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's the best one for South Australia. Uh, we are collecting recordings which are three to five minutes long, so that gives you a time to make a recording. Sometimes when you first start recording, the frogs go quiet, and being able to record for three to five minutes gives the frogs a chance to get over their nerves and then start calling again. With some of the other ones which record for 30 seconds or so, you push record, and if the frog doesn't start recording, uh, calling for 30 seconds you've got nothing on the recording so you might have to do it again and again and again to get the frog we're also asking people to collect some environment data so what is the habitat what's the water quality like and also things like temperature and cloud cover which and we think may be useful for us to understand why frogs are active at some point in future we'll have the data that people can go and assess if you're not in south australia there are other alternatives so certainly in Melbourne, there's a Melbourne Frog Census and they've got an app for recording frogs. There's a similar program up in the Gold Coast, I believe, where they do frog recordings. And then throughout Australia, there's the Frog ID app from the Australian Museum. So if you're not in South Australia, get on one of those other ones. If you're in South Australia, do the Frog Spotter so I can get the data for that one. (laughs) But ultimately, most of these programs are going to be submitting their data to the Atlas of Living Australia. So whatever program you decide to be involved in, the data will be available for people to access. So do you sit there all day listening and putting all this evidence <laughs> together? And Not all day. No. It, it depends how often people... You have a lunch break. S- ...submit recordings. <laughs> so in sometimes a year, especially around spring, is when we get the bulk of our recordings coming in. So we might have you know, a couple of hundred coming in in a very short period of time. In summer... It might be a month between recordings, Mm. and in which case I can listen to that one recording and then wait for the next lot to come. So it varies from depending on the time of the year. Mm. A lot of schools get involved in that? In in some some parts they do, yeah. And also some of the people who are responsible for managing wetlands and creeks, they're getting involved in the program and collecting the data so that they can assess their revegetation efforts or their environmental watering so in particular, some of the people involved in the SA Murray-Darling Basin NRM board 
they're responsible for managing a lot of the wetlands and they're trying to manage for frogs like the southern bell frog. So they're bringing in water to adjust the level of the water in the wetlands to make sure that the plants are growing well and the habitat is suitable. So they're getting involved making the recordings so they can see how that the frog populations how the frog populations are changing over time. Okay. So you're listening for the species uh, and percentage of species you can kinda of go, there's a lot more frogs this year and there's more of those and less of yeah. these and that means this and Yeah, and if they've not had southern bell frogs for a long time and they've altered the water regime and then they start getting them that's a good indication to them that method works so we'll do that at some of the other wetlands it's so tricky we've done a lot of podcasts with different nrm officers along the river and they're having to kind of reenact the flow regimes they were once obviously just it happened naturally yes and now they're trying to manage the water for so people can use and the environment can use and you've got to try to allow frogs to breed fish to breed plants to reproduce it's not easy is no it? it's like trying to juggle with 28 balls in the air at once mm-hmm. and going if i don't want to drop this one if i drop that one i'm going to be focused on that and then i'm going to drop another one and meanwhile someone's chucked a banana in the mix and you've got to juggle the banana as well as those 28 balls like <laughs> how do i do all this and there's somebody complaining about what i'm doing at the same time yeah. so it can be can be very <clears throat> tricky yeah. but using programs like the frog watch programs so they can assess some of the, what they've been doing is really useful and it's not the only tool they obviously have got other ways of monitoring what they're doing but every little bit helps any really positive success stories with maybe some of these revegetation programs or you know, threatened species coming back to areas that um, we know of? i don't have any specific ones from the data that i've been looking at but we have been getting southern bell frogs in the murray in some of those watering areas and it's, it's interesting, in the, in the five or so years that I've been doing the Frog Watch, we've had quite a lot of recordings of the long-thumbed frog in the Murray. That was a species that we occasionally got in the old frog census, but nowhere near as many as we're getting now. And I don't know if that's because of the effort that's gone into recording in those locations, or whether that frog is more abundant than it used to be as a result of the, some of this environmental watering. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how that goes. Because I guess all of a sudden you've got a lot of scientists looking into it. Yes. So that you could get an abundance yes. of something that you didn't get yeah, much it, of. It's yeah. very hard to to pinpoint the cause of something mm. when there's so many different factors that come into play. Is there any hardcore scientist out there that's hell bent on finding the gastric brooding frog and doing any research to try to locate them? I'm not sure. There, there may well be somebody up in Queensland who's made it their life's work to go and find it. I don't know the answer. Hopefully there is. Hopefully. Yeah. I might do it. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't have to be a scientist. One of the great things about citizen science programs is mm. you get people in the area involved and they can go and find things. So we've had things like butterflies and moths that have been rediscovered in Adelaide as a result of people getting out there and looking. You don't have to be a scientist to do that. Over in New South Wales and Victoria, there's been young children who've discovered new species of spiders because they've been interested and they've been out there looking and they happened to be there when this creature was moving through. They didn't have to have a scientist who planned to go out there in the hope that they might see a spider walking 
across their path. That's got a piss a scientist off, don't it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. They're, they're stuck behind <laughs> the computer. Yeah. <laughs> Damn it. I wanted to find that. Little but, Timmy, five yeah. years old from New South Wales. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, I, I think a lot of the scientists would be delighted that the, yeah. this species has been discovered and that there's somebody interested enough to go out looking because that person, when they get older, may become a scientist working in the same area who could take over from them. We don't want to have all these scientists getting old, holding all this information and then popping off the perch and nobody taking over. I think most scientists are really happy to have young citizen scientists come on board and, and carry the torch. Good. Do you think there could be species of frog on this continent that have yet to be discovered? Absolutely. New species are being discovered all the time. you just got to be there at the right time to find them. And especially some of these desert-dwelling burrowing frogs, if they're only active one or two nights a year and you're not there, you're never going to see them. But if you happen to be there when they come up, there's a new species just waiting to be discovered. So you have to follow the rains? Yeah, if, as long as you don't get bogged. <laughs> yeah. But that's also one of the values of having citizen scientists involved who are living in that area. So some of the pastoralists out bush, if they can get involved and collect some of this data, they're there all year round. And there's certainly been times when we've been in contact with the landholder and said, oh, we've discovered that you've got this frog species that's never been reported there before. And they go, oh, we see them all the time. (laughs) We didn't know it was a big deal that it hadn't been seen here before. Mm. So unless you know that something's interesting, you may not be interested in it. When you're listening back to the recordings that people submit, has there ever been anything that stood out to you? There's certainly been some funny experiences that I've listened to. I remember back in the, the days of the Frog Census, we used to send out audio cassettes and people would make the recording on the audio cassette. And there was one time when an older gentleman started recording and he said, I'm in my kitchen, I'm going to do the introduction because it's a bit wet and I've got to walk up to the dam I'll do the recording now to introduce it and then I'll go out and make the proper recording and then you hear a tap where he's obviously tried to push stop but he didn't actually hit stop on his tape (laughs) and then you hear him stand up walk across the kitchen open up the door, walk through, close the door march through his property up the hill, gets up to the top of the hill and he's (sighs) 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 and then he goes oh, it's still recording. And then he made the recording. <laughs> Whereas to me, I would have gone, it's still recording, thing. I'll rewind it. Yeah. But no, he just left it going. And I've had a recording where a man went out with his child and it was dark and they went around a, a creek to make a recording and the little child has gone, Dad, I'm scared. And he's going, it's okay, I'm with you. And then you hear, ah, splash, as a kid falls in the water. (laughs) And I'm thinking, Dad's going to be in so much trouble when he gets home. (laughs) But some of these things, they've they've kept on the recording and sent them in. I had one lady who was recording at a large dam, and she, she set it going, and she said, oh, the frogs have stopped calling, but they're calling at the other side of the dam. So then she started walking around to the other side of the dam. When she got there, she said, oh, they've stopped calling, but they're calling at the other side. I'll go back around there. So she was doing laps of the dam, and as she was walking, she was scaring the frogs. They were going quiet, and the ones in the distance would start up again. So 17 of, hours, that was. Yeah. <laughs> so some of those recordings can be quite fun. 
<laughs> I've also had recordings where they're slagging off people. And I'm thinking to myself, using these new technologies with the website and the smartphone app, these go live to the internet. So if you're slagging off your neighbour or your boss, <laughs> anybody on the planet can listen to this recording. So be a little bit careful about what you're saying. On that. Make a recording of the frogs, save your conversation for later, and then submit your recording. <laughs> Do you, do you keep any frogs as pets or you just have them out in your pond? Not at the moment. I used to keep some frogs as pets, but I, I don't at, at present. I've got some ponds in the garden and frogs come in there, but I don't keep them as pets at present. Have you kept any species? In the past, I've kept um, dainty tree frogs, green tree frogs, white lip tree frogs, parents tree frog, common froglet, brown tree frog, spotted grass frog, the ones that come to mind. Far out. Not many then. Yeah. <laughs> a few. And some of them do really well together, so you can put them all in the one tank. Others you need to separate so the big ones don't eat the little ones. All frogs are carnivores, aren't they? Yes. None of them eat fruit occasionally? Um, I think there may be a frog in Asia which has been reported to eat the flowers, but predominantly frogs are carnivores. Will generally, will only eat live moving prey. So some of them, like the cane toad, have been reported to eat dog food out of a bowl, but most require the stimulus of movement. So if you get a dead fly and put it in front of a frog, it'll ignore it, won't eat it. But if you get a fly on a little string and wave it in front of it, that stimulus of movement may be enough to make the frog try to catch that fly. But just a dead fly by itself, it's not going to be interested in. What are their most acute senses? It would be vision. Vision is a, a big one. So they've got these great big googly eyes. They're really well designed for night vision and for looking out for danger. So they can, they've got quite a wide field of view, but also pretty good for finding their prey and honing in and, and catching it. So sound is a very important one. Mm. Sound. I guess they'd have to be able to hear each other. Yes. Riveting. And there, guess all this noise, wouldn't it? Why? Yeah, there has been some suggestion that the, the hearing of female frogs is so fine-tuned that they only pick up the call of the male of their own species, so they will filter out all the other frogs and just listen to their own. So if you think about some of the spots in Queensland where you may have 10, 15 or more different species all calling at once, that's a lot of noise to try and identify where your mate may be coming from. But if you can block out all the other species and just hear your own, that's going to make it a lot easier for you to find a mate. Do they actually recognise, sorry, Adrian, do they actually recognise their mates actually in their own species yes. as well? Or? Yeah, yeah, generally. Yeah. So. And some of the frogs, like the bullfrog, which have got a very loud call, it's suggested that their eardrums are linked to their vocal sacs so that this, the air pushing out of their eardrums counteracts the noise coming in so they don't burst the eardrum when they're calling. Is that the African bullfrog? Yeah. African bullfrog yeah. and some of the American bullfrogs as well. African bullfrog, they're huge. Yeah. They're monsters and they eat adult mice and things like yes. that. Yes. Absolute monsters. Yeah. Are they the biggest frog? Not the biggest. There's a frog, Goliath frog, which is from the Congo region in Africa. They get to almost 40 centimetres long. Yeah or maybe even bigger than 40 centimetres, and they eat things like crabs in the rivers. So the large frog, if you extend their legs as well as their body, you're looking at around about 90 centimetres long. They weigh a couple of kilos? Yeah, about three, three and a half kilos. 
at the same weight as a bettong. Yeah. It's insane. Small child or a pet cat. (laughs) (laughs) And they can eat all of those as well. (laughs) (laughs) They have quite a big mouth. (laughs) Yeah, most frogs, they don't have teeth for chewing food, so they can only eat what they can swallow whole. So if you're a big frog, you can eat quite a wide range of prey. If you're a little frog like the common frog with the tiny mouth, you can only eat those little bugs. I think we found out from you last time that they actually use their eyes to pull the food in yes. as well. Yes, yeah, so That's they don't have any bone really behind their eyeball. So like the eye sockets in mammals, there's that bone behind the eye to hold it in place. Frogs don't have that, so basically they're open behind their eye and they can push their eyeball down so that the back of their eyeball or the, the membrane around the back of their eyeball can push on the food and help push that down into the stomach. The cane toad... I can't remember if we did this on the last episode. It's been a while since I listened to it. The cane toad, has that had big effects on our native um, native frogs? Yeah, I think it probably has. It's, it's spread over quite a lot of Australia, so it's come down into New South Wales. It's gone along the north, or the Northern Territory, into Western Australia. Everywhere it goes, it's going to be impacting on the local wildlife. So even if it's not eating native frogs, it's going to be competing for other resources. We know that it's poisonous across all stages of its life. It's a voracious predator. It's happy to eat just about anything. So I think it's going to have quite a significant impact on our local or the the frog species in those areas. I walked around Cairns one night a couple of years back, spotlighting when you you hold the torch by your temples and look for eye shine, and all I found was cane toads. Mm. It was a bit the same in NT, wasn't it? When we were in Darwin, like when we were driving along, there were just so many of them. Yeah. It was very sad mm. when, mm. You, when you know the devastation they caused. Yeah, uh, the, some of the native predators have been learning how to deal with them. So some of the crows and some of the water rats have been finding that they can eat certain parts of the cane toad. So hopefully many of the local predators will be able to adapt to the cane toad, but it certainly is a big problem. Mm. Millions of individuals in the population so can cause a major problem. I just hope they don't reach down here. I, I think, think the desert's going to stop them in between. Isn't it? I, I don't know. Their, their natural distribution in the United States, North America, South America, from the Texas in the desert areas through Central America, including some of the Alpine region, and then into the north of South America in, in the tropics. So you get them in the desert, the alpine and the tropics. Uh-huh. Why would they yeah. be blocked from coming further south? I was sort of thinking that, that that dry desert might stop them coming down. But Yeah, maybe. But if they can get into the Cooper and then down yeah, the Murray. Down that way. Yeah. So yeah. I thought it would be the cold that would stop them, but maybe not. Maybe not. They, they're pretty hardy little creatures. And they can change from egg to little metamorph very, very quickly. So in just a few weeks. So they don't need a huge amount of water to complete their life cycle. Did you hear about the couple that turned up at the Botanic Gardens the other day? Of toads? Yeah. You, you they, made it sound like a, it sounds like a, a joke, happy doesn't dose. it? Yeah. 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 Couple yeah. <laughs> they were just right into plants and <laughs> went to feed the ducks. No, um, it was the, oh, I say the other day, I think it might have been a couple of years ago now actually, but it was the outside <laughs> cinema. They have the, um, you know, we do the Botanic Gardens, we have the yeah. um, outdoor cinema. Yes. And that's that cinema travels around the country and i think it had come from cairns uh, okay. previously and they unraveled it and a couple of cane toads popped out mm. so i think the zoo have them on display now okay 
Would you be against me getting a cane toad to take around to schools and talk about poisons and things? Um, personally, I'm not against it, but I think the legislation might work against you. I don't think you're allowed to have them without a spe- special permit. What about if he doesn't tell them? <laughs> I've, got to, <laughs> I've got to ask Perza. I've got to really have a conversation yeah. with Perza. And- I wouldn't be surprised if you had to contain them in an... In an an enclosure that they can't get out of so I don't think you'd be able to pull them out and, and yeah. show people you'd have to have them in a s- secure display secure, okay. and I wondered whether Adrian just said I only want one all I want is one or one set I'd like so to breed some day so I've always got some <laughs> <laughs> well you've got the pond I've got the pond there <laughs> <laughs> yeah. not in front of Steve yeah. <laughs> I know places like Cleveland have got a permit to have them on display yeah. but I'm I'm not sure that it's something that would be easy for you to get hold of. Because there's such a, an obvious environmental problem, you don't want them getting out and causing a problem here. I'm not sure if I said it on the last podcast, but a girl I know, she and she's um, she's an older, older lady now, but when she was young, that they were dissecting frogs at school. And back then, they were doing it while the frogs were alive. And she was horrified. So she went in and stole the frogs and took them home and she got somebody, a friend of hers that had a car, to drive her to the airport, and she released them into the waterways there, but she kept one at home in her bedroom. Now, they were cane toads, and this came on the news, it was a big deal, the army were out looking for these cane toads, and her mum walks into her room and sees one in her room and and called the police on her. So she got in trouble. Mm. Is that a true story? That's a true story. Wow. Yeah, Mm. that was Lorraine. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, hardcore. Yeah. 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 But they shouldn't have been. I mean, I know they're not native, but you shouldn't be torturing them. No. No, they're not a creature that you want to harm just for the sake of harming them. No. We don't want them to be in Australia causing a problem in our wildlife, but still, they're a living creature. We don't want them to suffer. And a very impressive um, large toad as well. Yeah. They? They're awesome-looking yeah. animals. Oh, yeah. Great-looking animals, despite everything. Yeah. 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 There's many creatures which, in their own right, are beautiful. We just don't want them here. Yeah. Humans. <laughs> oh, here we go. Oh, let it go. Let it go. <laughs> There's also recently been quite a lot of debate about things like cats and having curfew. I've got cats. I, we've got them as a pet. They are not allowed outside except in a cat run. So they're contained on our property. They don't go into the neighbour's property. They don't go into the, the bush and cause problems. I think if you're a res- responsible cat owner, that's great. If you're going to have cats roaming the streets, that's a problem. Brian May wouldn't like that opinion. No. no. I know I'm a big fan of Brian May. I went to the Queen concert. Yeah, I just yeah. think that's that's yeah. merely like for me coming from somewhere like England. You know, it doesn't matter if your cat's out. Well, it doesn't, yeah. it, it doesn't matter. They're still out there killing things, mm. but they're normally killing rats and mice, which are pests. Yeah. Like, I, I think people like Brian May just wouldn't understand what they are doing in this country yeah and the thing about most of the wildlife in australia it's only found in australia if we lose it here it's gone off the planet when i was in london i saw a fox in the park and it was fantastic it was delightful to see it i don't want to see a fox in australia because of the problems they cause and just to explain for people that might not know what the guys are talking about brian may from queen queen recently performed here in adelaide and he'd heard about 
one of the councils in Adelaide wanting people to uh, enforce it, well, they're trying to enforce a cat curfew. A curfew, yeah. yeah. Nine at night till seven in the morning. Something like that. Like yeah. that mm. And I guess if, you, if you're not aware of the situation here, Australia never had cats. None of our animals evolved to deal with cats and they've been devastating as with foxes. And they, they kill billions of our animals per year. Mm. Billions. Mm. Yeah, and yeah, I, don't, I don't have a problem with people keeping cats as pets as long as they're responsible about it. Yeah, and but again, Brian May yeah. just didn't like the idea that we were locking cats up, I think. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, I'd love to have seen somebody sit down and have a word with them about that. And that's why we do education. I mean, I mean I, I'm like, I get to talk to um, people that have just come into the country that mm. have probably come from countries where you would never consider, like you said, yeah, um, yeah, well, don't leave your cat inside. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. make any sense. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, it's, it's education, you know. It's, he just doesn't know the devastation that they're causing here. That's, that's all right. Let's just... Someone tell him, please. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and again... Having a cat curfew doesn't give you carte blanche to cause pain to that animal. Absolutely. Yeah. Treat them with respect mm. and treat the environment with respect as yeah. well. We, we don't want people to go out there and start killing animals willy-nilly. No, you've got to have animal ethics involved in this as well. I'm not advocating anybody causing any harm to any animal. But equally, we don't want the cats going out and causing harm to our native wildlife. When you think about wildlife and the, the effects that we've had on it and introduced animals have had on our native wildlife and you know we know so many things have the tag endangered, vulnerable, threatened. Do you think with all the work that we're doing, restoring ecosystems and education, do you think we've, we've kind of stabilised now and things might start to adapt and there's positives there or is it too early to tell? I'm not an expert in that field. My hope would be that if we get enough momentum in the human population to respect these areas and respect the creatures that live in them, we will do our best to ensure them living into the future. And a lot of people now seem to be getting on board with the idea that these are living creatures, they've got rights. We need to tread lightly on the planet and do everything we can to protect them. Once they're gone, it's almost impossible to bring them back. We want to keep these creatures and these habitats alive, keep well-functioning ecosystems. Me, personally, I don't want to be the only species living on this planet. I think there's just as much right for these other creatures to live there as well. Mate, well said. Stephen, thank you so much for coming on again, mate. We love talking to you. You're most welcome. It's great to be here. Yeah. And as, as we get our rains, I mean, we've just had, we've talked a bit about the fires and it's been so dry and hot and terrifying. It's just lovely to see everything, you know, get a bit wet and start hearing some frogs. And it's great to see some of the habitat coming back after the bushfires. And it would be fantastic if people got out involved in the citizen science programs, whichever one they want to get involved in, and help us collect information and find out more about how our wildlife is doing. Citizen science is all over the world, so everyone can get involved in that stuff. Everyone's a citizen and everyone can get involved. Whichever one they want to get involved in. Frogwatch SA coordinator Stephen Walker. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank Thank you, you, Steve. (laughs) And guys, thank you for listening.